I think free NFTs are like the ultimate sort of either Trojan horse or gateway for creators who don't really understand mechanism design, pricing, all these additional things that are required to sort of know, to know, to kind of like issue a successful paid drop. Um, and the reason why I think free NFTs are so beneficial and why I've sort of led my content strategy and my community building strategy around it is because it's, it's so effortless. It's so much more powerful to be able to give something before you take something. Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains and the go-to place for everybody to learn about the latest innovations in Web3, NFTs, and the decentralized web. Join us each week to hear from experts, entrepreneurs, and the early stage investors that are building the future on the blockchain. Not only will this podcast help you understand why these emerging technologies are so important, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the metaverse. GMGM, GM, welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. My name is Josh Gordon. I'm your host today. Man, I'm excited for this conversation. We're joined by Adam Levy, founder of Bello and host of Mint. It's a podcast all around the creator economy. So Adam, how you doing today? Dude, I'm feeling good. Thank you for having me on. I think this is my second debut on somebody else's podcast. So it's still, it's still very weird for me to be on the other side of the microphone. Nonetheless, I'm super excited to be here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Yeah, I think it's I think it's cool to get other podcast host perspectives, especially yours, because I view you as so much more than a host. I really view you as a, a Web3 creator. And personally, I think as someone who's experimenting with content creation and thinking about ways to implement like Web3 and NFTs into what I do, I think there's a lot to learn from you. So I'm approaching this conversation as really like, what can Josh learn? from another creator in the web three space. And I'm really hoping that anyone listening to this pod, if like, if you're a creator, you're having some of the same questions that I have. So lots to unpack today. Let's do it. I'm ready. Let's dive in. Okay. So to start off, just give everyone a little brief background of you and you know, how you got into crypto and hosting mint in the first place. And then eventually, you know, founding Bello. I know that's a big journey, but if you can give me the, the quick and dirty synopsis that would help set the stage. Yeah. Okay. So I got into crypto 2017. What initially caught my attention was seeing Bitcoin at 20K. And I was like, how is something that's publicly accessible, like publicly traded, trading at such a high price? But what sort of kept me in the door was seeing what you could do beyond just, just day trading. So I came across a few companies that were helping musicians at the time, sort of like redistributing royalty payments. And I thought that was really cool because I'm a drummer. You can tell by the drum set behind me. And I was like, all right, there's more than just day trading. So I was like, that was enough. This was around the time where I kind of got into college as well. So I transferred to USC. Winter break came about. We had about four weeks off. And I just took that entire four weeks, just read the Bitcoin white paper and try to consume as much content as I could around the subject, only to later write in Facebook groups on campus. Like if you want to learn about peer-to-peer -peer payments on like a Saturday at 3 p.m., meet me in this room. I'm doing a whiteboard session and we're going to dive in. And I, like surprisingly enough, like three people came and uh, did it again the following weekend, like five people came and yeah, around that time, also, my friend had kicked off like the, the, the crypto club on campus, but he was leaving. So I took it over. And yeah, we had about a community of like, I think like 300, 350 students or something like that. I mean, we would do like white paper roundtables. We did recruiting events for Coinbase. We did a hackathon. We did all these types of things. And I uh, got my first internship around that time working for a VC fund called Draper Gorenholm. They're based in LA. 
and then even like worked in Europe for a little bit with a, with an IoT and blockchain startup in Vienna and did all sorts of stuff. But I guess like my most like extensive sort of professional work in the space was working at the fund. When I came back from Europe, I joined Tim's Tim's fund full time. It was really cool because I was the only full time employee over there between the three partners. And I did everything from like running this weekly event called Blockchain and Booze, which kind of kicked off my podcasting start to fundraising to doing deal memos to all sorts of stuff. So yeah, I mean, I guess I could also get into how Bello sort of came into the picture as well, or you would like me to stop there. <laughs> you know what? Let's pause there and introduce Bello, I think, as we get closer to that section of the pod. But I think it's interesting how writing really was your writing in this in this club. I mean, you talk about getting the club to 350 members and the the big saying in crypto creator economy is like your thousand true fans and you started getting 300 people interested in just something you were talking about and that experience probably translates to a lot of the things you're doing now as a as a content creator i imagine yeah very very true so the newsletter was was like a big piece of like getting information out so all the students were sort of subscribed to that newsletter and i had a few few friends that we were just like managing the the weekly sort of cadence of the of the organization What's funny is that we weren't like an official student org and we couldn't get money from USC for whatever reason, but we still operated like we didn't give a shit. Like we're just like, we're going to make, we're going to make something happen. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, good background. So let's start diving into the creator economy even more. And, you know, with the Mint Pod, you're getting to talk to artists, entrepreneurs, creators of all types, like whether you're not just a musician, right? Whether you're a writer, a photographer, doing all, there's all types of creation you can do online today. So I'd like to start off with getting insight onto what you've learned, you know, as a host, talking to all these fantastic guests. So if there's three tips that we're giving to people who want to build Web3 community or get into the creator economy themselves through NFTs, you know, what, what kind of tips can we give to these people starting out? And if we can list three, that'd be phenomenal. Yeah. Okay. So I think the first one is don't be afraid to experiment because there are no rules here. Nobody sort of remembers your failures unless it's like an incredibly huge rug pull or I don't know, a DeFi hack of some sort. So like if you're just like a small time creator, just due to the space coming into crypto, join as many communities as you can. Right. And just like try to try to experiment yourself, try to issue some NFTs, free NFTs, fail, get rejected and like, just keep like tampering and, and tinkering with what's possible. I think that's number one. Don't be afraid to experiment. Number two, this is something that Daniel Allen taught me, who's a, like a really, really well-known successful, like web three, web three native musician and producer in the space. He had a successful campaign that did incredibly well. And you know, he did it with like 200 Twitter followers. And he's like, you know, people may seem like I did something that was an overnight success, but I really did my homework and put six months into sort of climbing across different Discord channels, going to different events, doing one-of-ones with people before I had a drop. So the second point is before trying to attempt something yourself, that's like really big and grandiose that you expect some type of sizable outcome, really do your diligence and homework and meet other people in the community that might end up just collecting from you down the line. And the third tip is I like seeing people who consistently show up that could be either from like consistently showing up with your time or consistently showing up with your money. So either continuously collecting other things from other creators, right? And building like social capital or kind of like being involved in different communities with your time and using like your governance power, right? To kind of contribute 
on chain. Don't be afraid to experiment, do your homework and be consistent. I think those are the top three things. Yeah. I like that a lot. And I feel like tip number two on that community building kind of comment and, and showing up is that still, so you still think that's a valuable thing to do, even as we're moving a little bit away from, I feel like these discord groups, I mean, discord a year ago, <laughs> everyone was saying, you gotta be there. You gotta be paying attention to all these discord channels. Everyone kind of got discord burned out. So, but you're still feeling maybe it's not even discord only. It maybe is Twitter and other platforms where conversations are happening. If it's not Discord, then it's Twitter. If it's not Twitter, then it's Farcaster. If it's not Farcaster, then it's Lens, Lenster, right? And general Lens protocol. If it's not those platforms, then it's Telegram, right? Just try to be on the pulse and, and find a way to get involved. I think a good place to start is sort of listening to, to things like your stuff, right? And just listening to these individuals that, and not necessarily me, but other people that you've had on, right? Other content on there, right? That sort of give guidance as to like how-to related content or like educational pieces, as to how to take those first steps. And through the dialogue, you'll find out like different tidbits as to where you should be spending your time. I just listed a bunch as well, right? That extend beyond Discord, yeah. Sure, so another tip, maybe a bonus one, is I wanted to really ask you, and I was wondering if you would bring it up in your top three is free NFTs. Because it's something I've seen you do really well that I'm really interested in. And so maybe this isn't the one of the first three tips you know a creator gets to but let's say you know they're they're here they've experimented they're community building they're showing up they're they're putting their some of their money where their mouth is right how do you then think about free nfts as an entryway into the web3 creator economy or community building i think free nfts are like the ultimate sort of either Trojan horse or gateway for creators who don't really understand mechanism design, pricing, all these additional things that are required to sort of know, to know, to kind of like issue a successful paid drop. Um, and the reason why I think free NFTs are so beneficial and why I've sort of led my content strategy and my community building strategy around it is because it's it's so effortless, right? It's so, it's so much more powerful to be able to give something before you take something, right? And I'm a big believer on that, whether it's like through giving my content out for free, right? Giving it a free NFT and with that free NFT, you get additional free content and just find a way to continuously provide value before asking for something in return, I think goes a long way. So there's a great example that I like to reference. Her name is Queen George. She's also a Web3 native music artist. She's been in the space for, I think, almost two years now, maybe a year, and a year and a half, a little bit over that, whatever, doesn't matter. I remember in the hype cycle of the bear market, we tried to do a paid drop where we got inspired by Justin Blau's iconic drop and all the other campaigns he sort of consulted shortly after and try to replicate a site, a site based off that and do a live concert, essentially, for people to attend online during COVID. And the access way to kind of get the, the private link to view the live stream concert was by purchasing an NFT. And there were five different tiers. And to be frank, they were relatively expensive. Her audience kind of got really confused. They were messaging and replying on Instagram, like, what the hell is an NFT? I just want to watch it perform. So we stripped it. The, the drop completely flopped. A few months later, I guess like six months later, we revisited it with free NFTs on sound.xyz. So she had a campaign going on and she still had to build some, some, some type of collector base online. And the way I sort of guided her was like, try just like DMing a bunch of people on, on Twitter, right? Sending them your music and inviting them into a Telegram group chat and then through that, you would incentivize and reward them by entering the group chat using a free NFT, right? And I think she got about like 50 people in that group chat in preparation for her paid drop 
down the line, right? So as she sort of funneled people in, she used the free NFT as like a top level funnel. She got people into the group chat and Telegram. She sent different teasers and different like tidbits to sort of like prepare her collectors, her maybe soon to be paid collectors as to what they should expect by listening to the music, different cuts, etc. And then the sound drop came and it sold out and did well. Now, candidly, it was 25 NFTs. I collected two, but the other two, right, were from people who kind of like came across through that funnel and had experienced her and her energy across her sort of like diligence phase that I mentioned in tip number two. So I love free NFTs as like a top level, non-threatening funnel to get people in the door and then provide additional layers of utility beyond that. Yeah. Interesting. So in anyone who's done like, traditional marketing on social media, you know, everything really is broken down into these funnels. And I think there can be sometimes even a negative connotation around thinking about like funneling audience members in in web two, because it's all about clicks and views. But this is something that's more about giving, you know, letting people collect from you, get a taste of ownership in a really low risk way. Yeah. Are there other creators outside of that one example that we might want to look towards as doing things creative it does not just with free nfts but someone who's doing a good job with web3 community building or just showing how the creator economy can be used you know as as someone who's experimenting today there's a bunch of creators i know there's a lot yeah okay so i already spoke about daniel allen i'll talk about black dave I'm doing a session with him on the podcast, I think tomorrow. He, I think he was the first person to do a free drop on sound.xyz. And he just like consistently puts out like tweet threads and, and like mirror posts on his thoughts on the space. And that sort of cultivates like-mindedness across other people on the web who just so happen to also be collectors as well, right? So while it's not maybe necessarily like a Discord play because there's way more to community beyond just a token-gated Discord, right? It's more of like a consistent content play and using NFTs as a way to capture value. So you're using Web2 tweets, blog posts, et cetera, to kind of like create virality and spread the word, right? And to kind of create messages and using Web3 to capture value accordingly, either through free NFTs that then have secondary value and you kind of gain the royalties on that or through, yeah, even paid NFTs where you kind of get like both primary and secondary value. Yeah. So that's Black Dave. Um, Another one that I want to shout out is like, he's not like a traditional creator, but he's been really inspirational across my journey as a creator. So a friend, Cooper Turley, um, he doesn't mint stuff himself, but he's very much like a, a consultant or an advisor to many other projects and creators who end up doing exceptionally well in the space. So I guess you can say he's very like in, in front of the scenes, but it also plays a really big role behind the scenes. Yeah, Cooper was my first podcast interview I ever did. So okay, cool. shout out to Cooper. Yeah. There's also a Diana Chen. She's doing the, damn, I'm blanking out, but she rehash. was like the first one. Yeah, Rehash. Yeah, Rehash podcast. She was the first one to sort of introduce, I guess, like a DAO type of concept around curation, right? And kind of like finding guests from like a community point of view. So I thought that was really cool. I got in, I bought into the Mirror campaign on that. There's so many, like there's so many people. I We could dedicate an entire episode just to shouting out people. <laughs> yeah, honestly, that would be a that would be an interesting podcast episode doing like just 10 creator spotlights. Also got to give a shout out to Diana Chen on the pod because she really started the Unstoppable podcast and took it from zero to one and did like the oh, first cool. 100 episodes. Yeah, I took over when Diana moved on to do some other Web3 stuff. So big shout nice. out to Diana. I didn't know that. Okay, cool. Yeah, I also got to say rewinding a little bit, you know, just a, a couple minutes ago, you were something that stood out to me was you said, use web two for 
getting messaging out, you know, some virality, and Web3 for capturing value. And really great distinction between how to think through both. Because as a creator, we need both right now, right? It's not just one or the other. Absolutely. So the way the way I think about it is like Web3 has yet to perfect like wallet-to-wallet messaging, right? Or like content platforms that sort of maybe like more crypto native at the foundation. So I still use Substack, right? I write blogs on Mirror. That's maybe like the more Web3 type of formal content creation platform that I use. I also post on Farcaster and Lens, etc. Yeah, Web2 has done a really good job at sort of, yeah, creating like virality and in, in distribution algorithms that allow creators to be creators in the first place. What they've what they've sucked at is sort of helping them monetize without sort of being like, uh, I guess, greedy with how much they take as well, right? Their take rate. So that's why I like to use that analogy where you use Web2 to sort of build your audience, right? You use Web2 native platforms because Discord is also like a Web2 native platform. Now you can just like create bots that integrate more Web3 kind of composability within the, the, the chat application. But yeah, I still need Substack and, and Buzzsprout and Spotify to get my audio sort of distributed and to build an audience, but I can use crypto, NFTs, DAO primitives as a way to capture that value and uh, create interesting experiences accordingly. Love it. Okay, so let's take all that and now focus on you. And I want to dive more into, you know, if you would, if you had just shouted out Adam as, you know, Web3 creator who's doing something good, like let's talk about why the things you're doing are working, maybe even not working if you have any uh, insights on that. But your, I want to get to know your Web3 creator playbook that you're using for Mint. And you just touched on some of them. I mean, I heard Substack, Farcaster. I mean, you talked about Discord. When I was thinking through this, what I see from you is podcast leading into free NFTs, leading into newsletter, and also leading into limited edition NFTs that aren't free. So those are some of the things I'm seeing online, but yeah, you share with me your stack and like how the, how it all works together. Yeah. Okay. I've never publicly talked about my stack in a whole kind of like comprehensive discussion. So I got to think about how I sort of uh, funnel this. Okay. So one of the things that I try to focus on as a crypto native creator, okay, is I need to find a way to kind of like create a direct line of communication to my listeners and find a way to also, right, that's like the Web2 component and find a way to sort of capture value and share value from like a Web3 component, right? So my content stack very much works on Substack. So I'm, I think I'm now almost at 30,000 subscribers on Substack, okay? Very much like Spotify, right? Apple Podcasts and kind of using Buzzsprout to be my distributor and hosting platform for, for all my audio content. I also use YouTube, but I don't focus too much time on that. I just try to focus on like audio and, and writing. So those are like my, the, the ways I kind of propagate messages. And I trust the Substack algorithms and the I guess Spotify and podcasting algorithms to sort of distribute my content accordingly. And then I try to find ways to funnel in and to try to reward users through free NFTs on my website. So if you go to adamlevy.io forward slash NFT, every single season of the podcast, I give a free NFT. Okay. And I can, I can sort of do this by kind of seeing how people are engaging with my content across Substack, right? And how they're sort of listening to my stuff across Spotify, how they're engaging with my newsletter, whatever it may be. And I, I integrate this free NFT element because it's a cool way to sort of like capture engagement and reward the user for being a participant in a specific season along the way, right? Why is that incentive? Why is that like important? Why do users care? 
because they get to sort of collect this, what I call an NFT pin, a listener pin, okay? And they get to kind of like benchmark their participation on chain as a mint season five or mint season six listener. And then me on the other end, I can sort of like build my arsenal of content and distribution to reward these people accordingly, right? So one thing that I give to my, my pin holders is I give out a, a selection of additional content that's gated strictly for pin holders. So one thing that I did for season five, which was last season, I created an updated database of the top 400 music NFT collectors with their Twitter, their, their wallet address and their net worth, essentially on the platforms that they collect on because around that time I was also doing music NFT related content and I had a lot of creators listening and they wanted to learn how they can sort of spin up their first music NFT campaign. So I gave them a database of those who sort of collect music NFTs, right? And by the way, this is all public information, right? It's just like someone needs to be crazy enough to take the time to do it, okay? So another thing that I do is like more exclusive content. So I create like specific articles and blog posts, let's say on Mirror, and I gate them using Bonfire. Based off that, they can use their pin to access like something that I release is like the free NFT or the, what was it called? The art of free NFTs. Basically breaking down like why free NFTs are like the Trojan horse and what you could do is essentially as a creator to benefit as well. I try to capture like email addresses as a creator, right? And also wallet addresses as a creator because that allows me to create better content and better experiences for my listeners. Yeah. So I'm going to ask a question about the email addresses versus wallet in one second. But before that, coming back to the token gating, is there any metrics you're using or decisions on what you should be gating versus not gating? Or is that just, hey, this is a, a cool idea that I think really is valuable like the database and so that's what i'm going to gate versus other things are open and free to anyone like how do you decide what's gated and what's not i decide what's gated and what's not based off what i think is going to have the most amount of value so my audio my video content my newsletters that i publish three times a week like that's free to access because i think that's like the standard like that's what people should expect and that's what I should deliver because if I under deliver, then I'm not sort of like producing at the realm of what a creator should be sort of producing. Now I could be completely psycho and be overthinking it, right? The reason why I sort of gate the, the database or the additional articles, et cetera, is because, yeah, I want people to feel like there's some value in getting the pins, right? So you get access to this database, you get access to these additional articles that sort of like my mental model and lessons learned across 20 episodes of recording and bring up the, the practitioner who also kind of like applies his lessons, right? That he learns across the podcast. You get to access that as long as you take the effort and time to claim an NFT and spend some gas to claim the NFT, right? And I feel like to that extent, because I spent so much more time creating that myself and organizing that myself, that it should be rewarded accordingly to those who sort of take the additional steps themselves to access that content. So audio newsletter, et cetera, for free, additional sort of like uh, content that takes me longer to curate is what's gated, but still for free, right? It's still free to access, it's just gated. Totally. When you put out these free NFTs, do you have the plan of the content that's gonna be gated already? Or is some of that just happening kind of naturally as you go? Typically it's like a week before I do it, or two weeks before I do it, because I'm able to really just like sit down for a minute and really reflect on all these conversations, look through all the blog posts that I even published on my own website to the conversations that I have in the past, see what got the most engagement on Twitter, right? And what, what got the most amount of downloads and sort of double down on those. Because if the metrics are telling me that those are the ones that did and performed the best, like those are, should be the ones that I sort of, uh, yeah, double down on. I think another, another interesting thing is like what I've been experimenting with that extends beyond the newsletter is now posting on Leinster, 
because I've realized that content creators do really well in Leinster in terms of how their the content gets distributed. So I remember posting, I did this one like commemorative post basically celebrating a year in writing, 52 newsletters were published, also published it on Leinster. It got over like a thousand people collecting it, a bunch of likes, a bunch of comments. Now, some of the comments were questionable, of course, but there was some like legit engagement that then translated into more newsletter subscribers. That's something I've been posting on and, and posting more on as well. Yeah. Hey, that sounds like an example of a tip number one of experimenting, you know, leading to growing your community. No, very, very cool and insightful there. And I want to just say, you know, you, you said you're trying to be a practitioner of some of these lessons you've learned. And that's definitely something I'm, that's in my next step too. So very, very timely comment. So I did want to ask about wallet addresses. I'm jumping a little bit ahead to a community question that I sourced from Twitter that was directly aligned to this. So I want to ask it now just while you bring it up versus waiting to the end of the pod. But they wanted to know, do you think collecting crypto wallets will become more important than email addresses for solo creators? Why, how, and then, you know, on, I, I added a, on top of that, what do you even do with the wallet addresses once you collect them? So right now I, I mentioned earlier that like wallet to wallet messaging still sucks. Like people's attention is still on web two platforms. There has yet to be like a, a chat application that's uh, purely wallet to wallet based. There's a bunch of like a bunch of projects that raise a, a shit ton of money around that to sort of execute on that idea and create the ultimate platform, but it's not there yet. A lot of the reasons is because it just takes a lot for the user to go to another platform on top of the all the other like chat applications that we have: Facebook Messenger, Instagram DMs, Twitter DMs, Telegram, Discord, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like we're over bombarded now. We're gonna have another chat application. I'm a big fan of it, but I think it has yet to be executed. So. The reason why I collect email addresses is so that I can have, again, back to the web two analogy, like I have to build like distribution strategies as a way to communicate my messages, right? And web two has just perfected that. And the reason why I capture wallet addresses is so that I can provide additional value to those who kind of proved who's listening. Another reason why I capture wallet addresses is because there's also a lot of information in wallet addresses that allows me as a creator to be a smarter creator. One of the things that Web2 creators have done really well, like Mr. Beast, for example, he's very public about this. I think he talked about this on the Joe Rogan podcast where he like overanalyzes the performance of like a thumbnail. And if he doesn't see specific metrics around how things are performing, he kind of scrapes ideas and videos, even if they're already produced, right? So he uses like YouTube's data, YouTube's analytics to kind of become a better creator and a better informed creator so that he can create better content for his users. Similarly, in Web3, that element is still incredibly important, but we don't have that for creators, right? Right now, it's just like primary value, secondary value, total value locked, all these like financialized based metrics that sort of, which a creator may, may think kind of guides the community's health, but there's so much more that happens on chain than just like primary sale, secondary sale, price go up, price go down kind of thing, right? So I also try to use those addresses as a way to kind of like get an aggregate analysis as to who my listeners are, who are my collectors, and provide better content and better sponsors and better information for them. For example, okay, and this kind of ties into Bello, which we can talk about later, but Bello is essentially like an analytics tool. And I noticed through this analytics tool that I built, me and my, me and my co-founder built is... Um, a lot of my collectors also collect on Zora Marketplace. And prior to knowing that, I never really knew knew that I should maybe be creating content with Zora, right? So I brought on to date, I think like two executives on the podcast and those episodes are outperforming any other episode or any, any other interview that I've had in the past. And I was able to kind of curate that content by looking at what's happening on chain, 
There's a bunch more examples that pertain to sponsorships and selling NFTs, etc. But that's sort of like my mental model. Yeah. Does that answer the question? I hope. Yeah, no, totally, totally does. And you hit on a couple points that I wanted to bring up next. So good segue to it, honestly. You just mentioned monetization and, and sponsors. And I had some thoughts around that because I see that you, A, you do podcast sponsorships and you do it through selling NFTs. And so that was unique to me. And I'm curious, you know, do brands or companies like buying the NFTs to showcase their sponsorship? Because I feel like a lot of times in traditional sponsoring, when I'm listening to a podcast, I'm going to hear, you know, brought to you by, uh, you know, X sponsor. That's something that the brand doesn't really get to hold and to, to say, hey, we're, we're supporting this creator over here. And it's very, they're very separated, you know. So I'm curious if you found any more positive buy-in by selling sponsorship packages in the form of NFTs. Yeah, when, when somebody collects a sponsor, a lot of like the excitement around it comes from the PR moment that happens with it, right? So being able to say somebody collected my NFT or it sold out or did this, it's, it's great distribution. It's a great PR event online that gets attention, right? Since episode one, I was very lucky to have two particular parties that sort of bet on me early when I had no viewership. It's Coinvise and POA, Proof of Attendance Protocol. Genil and Patricio, they're incredible people. When I sort of announced that I'm going live with this podcast, they were the first people to sort of give me sponsors, uh, give me sponsorship money and collect my sponsorship NFTs. Because at the time, I guess there was a gap. Well, not a guess. I saw there was a gap to sort of like create creator-related content in, in Web3. So the way I do it is that I give out these like non-transferable NFTs, these soulbound NFTs for people who like keywords. And essentially, it's my way to earmark participation in a specific season. So I'll, I'm on season six now. I mean, six seasons have passed and every single season, somebody has sort of sponsored either somebody or I think it was max five. I think season three had maximum five, five NFTs that were collected or season four. I can't remember. Why do I do an NFT and not just like a wire transfer, right? Because I can do things with that NFT from like a token gated access point of view that I can't do with a wire transfer, right? I can't wire like token gate a wire transfer, right? But if I have some participation on chain and you can prove that through the transaction and the NFT that they hold in their wallet, as, as I develop Mint, as I develop my creatorship, I can create cool experiences, not only for listeners, not only for speakers, which also get NFTs, but also sponsors, right? And we can do this whole like on-chain token-based familia that I can't really do through traditional payments. So it acts as like a token for, for activation, essentially for additional experiences. Yeah. yeah. I, I got the CoinVise episode flagged to listen, the one you just did, to listen to on, on my weekly rotation. Okay, so you just mentioned something I didn't realize. The speakers are getting NFTs as well. So how are you distributing those? So sponsors get different NFTs than speakers. Well, sponsors and listeners get the same type of like NFT. Speakers get a different NFT. Speakers get POPs because it's just super easy to distribute. And many times they just like dox themselves online so I can just kind of airdrop to them without their permission, right? Or without them knowing, without the hassle of having them claim it. And then, yeah, sponsors get more of like uh, NFTs that they can mint on my site. Same thing with listeners. And I just try to do everything on chain, like try to do every element on chain. Now I'm introducing also like content on chain. So I'm starting to tokenize my episodes and sort of create like podcast NFTs that we can talk about later. Yeah, I mean, that was my next question is like, I see you selling podcast episodes as NFTs and I'm curious what success and lessons learned you've gotten there. And even, you know, just the decision of 
how do you turn which episodes into NFTs or like the whole catalog versus a single one? But yeah, let's just start high level with lessons learned and success. Okay. So lessons learned for free NFTs. Okay. Or free NFTs. I was really thinking podcast NFTs. Oh, podcast NFTs. Okay. So um, do you want to talk about the sponsorship ones or do you want to talk about me tokenizing an episode or both? I mean, both. I think you did kind of break down the sponsorship. But if there's anything else that's not that you didn't cover, then feel free. No, I think I think we covered it all for for sponsorship. Okay. So then yeah, yeah let's I do just the actual want, yeah. episodes. Okay, so podcast NFTs, tokenizing a, an audio file. Okay, the Web three community is getting more familiar with collecting WAV files through music NFTs, right? For the longest time, I've I've always been like trying to think about like what are other ways podcasters can sort of monetize their content because podcasters don't get treated the same way as music artists do on streaming platforms. Like Josh, you and I, we don't get paid per stream. Like we don't see that to some extent, maybe like the top 5% podcasters or top 1% see that revenue, but there's a huge, like a long tail of creators. that don't see that. Whereas music artists, regardless if they're like top 1% or top 99%, right? Like at some point over a certain amount of time, they'll get their, their revenue per stream if it's set up correctly through distribution channels, whatever it may be, but we don't see that. So NFTs could be poised as a new way to sort of uh, capture that value by, yeah, I guess incentivizing the user to collect something if they really enjoy the episode. Like that's how I see it. It's another form of patronage. So there's no real royalties for me to attach uh, to this podcast NFT because I don't get anything from web to streaming platforms what I could do in the future, which I'm not too sure on like the, the the legal landscape is like sort of maybe do like an income sharing agreement with the sponsors who pay me, right? Which I don't want to promise any of that because it's very, very weird and very unclear. So I'm staying away from that. The whole takeaway is like, I try to experiment more with like tokenizing episodes, okay? And I don't tokenize every single episode. I figure out the ones that I think are going to be performing best or the ones who have performed best in the past. So the first one that I did was a one of one. It was with Eric Reppel, head of data at Zora. And that goes back to me realizing through on-chain data, seeing that we have an overlap in our collectors and kind of seeing how that episode outperformed all the other episodes. So I was like, whatever, I'm going to make this my first podcast NFT. It was a one of one. I priced it at zero. It was an open bid structure for 24 hours. And uh, I think like eight people bid and, and uh, Jacob, who's the co-founder of Zora, ended up claiming it for like 0.22 ETH. Okay. The second one that I did, I was like, all right, let's let's mess around with like additions. So the next one that I did was an episode with Blockchain Brett, which ended up being my most listened to episode for season three. And uh, a lot of people, when I posted that, they're like, wow, this is such an iconic episode. Like, this is super cool. This episode made me buy my first music NFT. Like those were what they were commenting. And that ended up being in translating into transactions, right? And collections. So I kind of saw that, wait, there's value in podcasting. Podcasting is just another art form. This is something that people would collect. And the price for that, by the way, if we're already just going on this, I got from Bello, right? So I was able to see kind of like what my collectors were purchasing right now at the different price points that they were purchasing at and use that as a way to kind of price my NFTs because I didn't know what, what to price it at. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to go with that. And the last one was with Cooper's episode. He did like a debut on the Mint podcast, kind of like revealing his new $10 million fund. And we, were, we said that this is going to be the next episode we tokenize and also did really well. There's no real like... I guess like magic to how I do it. I just kind of see like, what's the best content? What are people enjoying? And use that because assuming that if it's performing well in web two, then it might perform well in web three. Yeah. Do you think that before 
monetizing right given the condition of the market right now it's a better idea to experiment with free before you go to monetizing work or i mean is that really case by case dependent and it's hard to even put like a, a rule of thumb on it i think you can still monetize work you just have to be like super self-aware as to how you can monetize i still see people trying to do like like multiple editions like drop multiple editions at a really high price point and you just can't do that right now like 0.05 is the new 0.1, right? Like 0.1 was like the premier price for like music NFTs in, in the bull market. Now it's like 0.05. And we're also seeing like 0.02, right? So you just have to be very like cognizant and self-aware. The NFTs that I sold for the podcast, they were, it was like priced at like 0.02, 0.03, and for 25 to 33 editions, like super low. But it's enough to sort of build some type of like uh patronage model on chain and like some type of like paid collector base just to kind of like get things going right i still think people are collecting and honestly in my opinion doesn't matter like look what's happening on chain like people are still buying nfts maybe at lower volumes but yeah money's still being spent eth is still being deployed yeah so if the monetization is really you broke that down really well then what about your first nft i mean firsts have been Something that got a lot of hype during the bull run, like, you know, X artists first edition, or this was the first NFT ever, you know, that that was a narrative we had for a long time. So how should we be thinking about what your first NFT is? Or is that placing too much importance on it? And we should really just run to experiment as fast as we can. I think that's up to the creator because everybody has a different emotional attachment to their art. Some people take days, months, even years to even push something out. And some people are just like, I'm just going to produce a song and release it the next day and mint it as an NFT, right? It, it really, it's, on a, it's really dependent on the creator. But one thing that I learned from the podcast that I applied to myself is, I, I think it was in season four, I interviewed Verte, who was one of like the music, music uh, NFT, like, I guess like, yeah, icons in the space. Really set the, yeah, really set the tone for a lot of other people and a lot of other artists entering. And when she came on the podcast, she basically talked about how when I did my first drop, I wasn't sure what to price it at, so I let the market decide. Similarly, I did that with my first one of one. I didn't know what to price it at, but I did a 24-hour open open market bid, right? I set the, the the minimum, the minimum minimum price was like 0.0000001 ETH, so basically free. I was like, I'll just tweet it, tweet about it and see what people think and let them decide. And that's what I did. I think uh, if you're like a nobody creator like me, like you can mess around. But if you're like Kim Kardashian or you're all these other like bigger creators and celebrities that are entering the space, there's a level of expectation that they have in their brand that they need to sell out in addition and make millions. And I think that's why like a lot of them aren't sort of uh, experimenting publicly, at least in the space. They may be investors in other projects, but not doing their own drops. Yeah. Makes sense. Totally yeah. makes sense. Last question I have for you on kind of the monetization and the minting before we do get into a little bit more Bellow talk is, are there any platforms or minting mechanisms that you can throw out that would be really helpful? I mean, you've, you've kind of mentioned some uh, as we've talked through this, but really specifically, if what's my minting stack as a creator who is not sure where to start? So back to the beginning of the conversation, we talked about experimentation, something that I've been experimenting more with, like full transparency. They're also a sponsor for season six of the podcast, but I think it's been such like a win-win type of collaboration that it's allowed me to grow my creatorship as well. So I've been posting on Lens Protocol, uh, specifically on LensStir and LensTube. I haven't seen too much engagement on LensTube, but seeing like a lot of like engagement on, on LensStir which is like a Web3 native Twitter. And I, and I, this goes back to me telling you like the content distribution
information, how things kind of get circulated is done really well. I don't know what goes into it, but uh, I'm getting like great engagement. It may be questionable engagement too, but I, I it's converting to like newslet- newsletter subscribers. So I'm continuously doubling down on that. So, but that, that kind of comes into form when you're kind of like tweeting or like doing like blog posts, for example, you can like publish a long form copy on there. In terms of like minting, because you can also mint that piece, by the way, too. Like if I mint, like when you publish on Lent, you mint, uh, you mint your piece, right? So people can collect it. So that's okay. on that, okay? So we've got Leinster. Leinster, okay. Next thing is uh, Zora has a really good like interface and really simple interface for minting any type of NFT. I think they're also very like culturally relevant. And a lot of the the early, early trends, like for example, like music NFTs, right? Like that got kicked off on Zora before you had catalog and sound and all these other curation-based platforms. Um, so Zora is really great. That's where I met my podcast NFTs. What else? I think Mirror, like, although we, we have yet to see like, like writing NFTs really take off. I like it. Like, did you really read something if you didn't collect it? Like that's what like hovers in my mind now. So being able to collect and support a writer is super cool. So if you want to write like mint, like, uh, like, or like publish like really interesting, like well-designed blog posts, right? Go on, on Mirror. Yeah. There's like, there's too many like free NFTs are like, I love Poops. Pops are great for free NFTs, depending on how you use them. They will sort of like, I don't want to say ban your account, but like restrict you from minting NFTs if if they see you abusing the system. But if you do it in a very like thoughtful way, right, they'll support it. And are you using Coinvise at all to mint? I am using Coinvise. Like a lot of the creators that I work with when it comes to minting their social tokens, for example, or like their membership NFTs, I send them to Coinvise, right? I haven't done like a membership NFT myself, but uh, it's a great tool for that type of use case. Okay. Great yeah. breakdown. No, thanks yeah. for that. Okay, so Bello, let's dive into that and give it the uh, give it the rundown. So, you you mentioned it. I mean, a couple times as you were talking through your journey on the importance of blockchain analytics and how for you as a creator that gave you insight into your community, who they wanted to hear from, how you could price point your collections and whatnot. So, what is Bello? Why is it helpful for Web three creators? So. I'm super excited to talk about this. And I think a great way to sort of like understand Bello is diving into what happens in Web2 as a creator. So before I jump into Web3 as a creator, let's talk about Web2. So in Web2, creators are the platform, right? If you remember when TikTok came out, okay, a lot of the Instagram artists tried to move and migrate onto that platform, but they didn't see as much success and they lost a lot of their virality, right? A lot of their audience. And now TikTok creators are like the new hot thing. And it shouldn't be like that. And that's also part of the reason like what, what Lens Protocol solves. With that, essentially, on Web2, on web as being the product of the platform, you sort of like, you license and give your data out for free. And there's only so much access you can have that to that information. Whereas in Web3, when you build audiences through tokens, right? And whether you, you bootstrap a community in liquidity through a token drop, right? Or you give out free NFTs to, to create a top level funnel of, of collectors to later monetize, whatever it may be, the binding element is the token on chain that can be used to sort of build really meaningful communities. And with that comes a lot of meaningful data. Whereas a Web3 creator, you get to own. You get to control, it's yours, right? Ethereum will never shadow ban you. It will, it will never do that. As a creator, you are the platform and everywhere you go, you take your audience. That's why you're seeing, I would argue, like the more successful platforms out there sort of build experiences around creators that allow them to kind of bring their community to them. So on that thought, creators need to have access to the type of value that they create and the value that they capture. And right now there's no real way to access information on chain on an aggregate level. 
The individuals that kind of collect your NFTs, there's only so much you can find out through existing analytic tools, right? So as a creator myself, as someone who's given out a lot of free NFTs, who's doing paid NFTs, I kind of experienced this problem because I had I had a theory. I was like, wait, if I knew more about who my collectors were on chain and the type of activity that they have, I can then create better content for them. I can then find better sponsors and make money, make more money as a creator. I can maybe even find ways to price my NFTs by seeing what type of activity and so much more. So that's sort of like where, where Bello came in. And I hit up my friend, Ellie. She's a very, very talented developer. We got connected through, through another friend. And I was like, Ellie, we have this problem. I'm having this problem. Let's try to solve this problem because I've been talking about it on the podcast for months now and nobody has seemed to solve it. We went to ETH Amsterdam. We built an MVP in about 48 hours. We presented the MVP. We won. We were one of the people who won the hackathon and we've been working on it since. And the sole intention of Bello is to help creators learn more about who their collectors are, who their audience is, so that they in turn can become better creators, better content machines, better individuals, and kind of pursue their, their creative spirit that Web3 is allow, allowing them to sort of like, kind of like be, uh, yeah, liberated essentially. So wow, that's Bello. That was a heck of a pitch for um, a product or a Web3 application. You nailed that one. I love it. Very cool that uh, you found this problem that you had and then went out to solve it. It's like that's the piece of creator advice that I see so much online is like, you know, write for one person because there's thousands of that person out there who want to hear that problem and solution. And for you, it's like you built for your problem and knowing that other people are facing the same thing. So then if there's three ways that on-chain data can help inform a creator strategy, are you able to provide three? I've, I've got guesses, but I'd love to hear it from you. So when you're trying to do activations with brands, because brand collaborations tend to be a, like a really big source of revenue for creators, you want to know as much as you can about your audience so that you can provide these, these statistics and these metrics to these brands to form the right partnerships and activations. So you can use like Spotify data, you can use Google Analytics to kind of tell whether they're male or female, what percentage, where they're coming from, and kind of curate a campaign accordingly. But on chain, now I can kind of tell like what their net worth is, right? How experienced they are in the space based off their activity. So kind of seeing their net worth, right? And their, their level of experience based off their wallet age is a great indicator that I can then take to brands and be like, yo, these are the demographics and the statistics pegged with what's happening in Web 2. So I have what's happening on chain in Web 3 and there, there are characteristics in Web 2. It builds for a more compelling narrative when going to brands. So that's number one. Okay. Number two is sort of seeing like what other communities and, and audiences are they a part of? So I noticed back to that example that a majority percent of my collectors also collect on Zora Marketplace. And this was identified by the Zorbs that they collect, different NFTs that they've minted on, on the marketplace, etc. And based off that, I was able to make this action by inviting somebody on the podcast and seeing a noticeable like increase in downloads accordingly. Another thing that I noticed is also like potential sponsorships, right? Because that's my form of revenue as a podcaster, as a creator. So I noticed that a lot of my my creators, they're like multi-chain, they hold Matic, and um, they're also Aave native. So engaged in a collaboration with Lens Protocol and the conversions on those campaigns have been like through the roof. They've been really, really well, really successful. Another third example, okay, number three is pricing, okay? A lot of creators don't know how to price their NFTs, right? They're good at creating. That's what they do as creators. But how do you approach pricing? So this was the problem that I had as a podcaster. 
which uh, I wanted to figure out what should I price my, my podcast NFTs at. So by being able to see in an aggregate way, in a non-intrusive, in a non-sort of like revealing way, seeing what my collectors were purchasing in, let's say, the last 60 days, I can see all their primary and secondary purchases categorized into specific buckets and be able to tell like, okay, I realize that out of my whatever, 600 collectors for a specific season, right? They purchased about a thousand or so NFTs in the last 60 days and majority of them were purchased for less than 0.05 ETH. So if I want to find the right price, I should experiment with less than 0.05 ETH. That should be my price range. So yeah. Really great practical examples of how like on-chain data can help inform creators. And I just found myself thinking about the traditional music artist and you know on spotify it gives you information on the top 10 cities that your audience is in and this is almost a way of looking at instead of where people live it's like where do people spend their time on the internet by looking at what nfts they've collected and getting insight into the communities and discussions they're participating in so you're you're able to figure out where they are physically in the you know in the metaverse to an extent how valuable would it be as an artist if one of the ways they make they make money is through merch and but you have no idea how much money artists of a similar size to you are making off merch what types of merch they're really selling you know where people are buying it from and now adding this nfts think about nfts as a revenue stream gives you just so much more insight into how to operate uh, as a creator yourself so that excites me i think that we're a ways away from seeing just a lot of people adopting this and fans really adopting like, you know, NFT revenue stream type of products. But I see that vision and I think we'll get there because it's just better for a creator than the options they have today. I think just on the on the music front, because it's so interesting and music artists are so hot in crypto right now. When you do this like on-chain analysis, you might even find out that a lot of your collectors overlap with another music artist, right? And you guys have never done music together. And if you just collaborate on a song, and if it makes sense, of course, from genre-wise, et cetera, you guys produce a song together, mint it, that could be additional revenue for you as a, as a, as a music artist, right? You don't necessarily have to release it in Web 2, right? Like that can be a completely different audience that you release for. It could be like a Web 3 exclusive type of song. There's so many things that you can kind of find out as a creator using this on-chain data in a non-intrusive, like a non-kind of like uh, penetrating way, for example. Yeah. Totally. All right. So appreciate the description of, of Bello. I'd now like to transition into one more community question before hitting you with my one, two, web three. I did ask a community question earlier. My second one is from me. So this is a question from Josh as a creator to Adam. Now I'm thinking about starting a Web3 newsletter myself and I've got a lot of ideas and maybe some of it we talk about off record, but what is the way for me? Like I, I put a, a subscribe link in my Twitter bio and I really haven't promoted it too hard yet. It was just to kind of test an idea and I got a hundred subscribers. And so, which is, which is fantastic because considering I haven't put out any writing yet, but my question for you is like, what's the best way to get my first 1,000 true fans as a Web3 writer if I'm starting from scratch? Like I have a, a Web3 native audience on Twitter, but I'm trying to figure out how to take that next step. Is there one action that you think would be recommended to start getting to that, you know, 1,000 true fans of real, you know, community members who are interested in the work that I'm putting out? It just falls down into two words, okay? 
free NFTs. I think that's what it comes down to because the free NFT collectors are not going to all be your 1000 true fans. They like, they won't fall into that category, but you can continuously create like token gated initiatives around those free NFT collectors that then maybe inspires paid collectors through that. Right. And I think if you spend like six months doing that, four months, three months, whatever, however much time you put online, I think you could see some like really cool and, and fun results. I think also with that, the more you talk about like your your purpose with building that true, like that free, free NFT funnel, the more you'll attract like-minded people who appreciate that purpose, that why, and will want to just kind of like claim that free thing to show like they were there as a creator in your, as a collector in your creative journey. For sure. Love it. Love the answer. I think, I think that is advice that is not just applicable to me, but also other people who are trying to figure out what that first step is. So thanks for that. All right. One, two, web three, three rapid fire questions to end the pod. First one, and it's going to be, this is gonna be a hard one for you particularly because of all the people you talk to, but who's an influential web three creator, entrepreneur, collector that's inspired or educated you. You got to pick one. Got to pick one. I would have to say, Queen George, she's the one. Because if it wasn't for her and all the flexibility that, and like all the openness that she was kind of like, yeah, I guess like open to with my crazy ideas in the beginning, I would have never like had someone to sort of be like a test dummy with, right? And teach me about all these things and be the practitioner that I wanted to be and sort of apply what I was sort of like preaching on the podcast. So I'd have to say Queen George, yeah. Great. Second question, favorite NFT? My favorite NFT is my Lil Noun, like by far. I think also because uh, it, it got me two new speakers on the podcast. So it was a bidding war, okay? It was between Andy from Tessera, Eric from, who's like the CEO and founder of Artblocks, and Eric Reppel, who's the head of data at, at Zora. Just like those, that entire like on-chain like auction or whatever, Created really cool, cool relationships, et cetera. Yeah. So my little noun. That's awesome. I was on Twitter the night that little nouns went live and, you know, saw it. And then I, I, I watched like little noun five, six, seven get minted. And I bid on, I don't remember the number. It was like number 10 or something like that. And uh, got into a little bit of a bidding war and I pushed my price because I really liked it. I didn't, I didn't win it. I was, I was second. I did not pick one up after that. Cause I, I liked that one I saw so much. So I, I pop on little nouns every now and then I'm like, all right, <laughs> nice. let, let me see what's minting right now. GG, Very GG, cool. good game, good game. All right, sick. All right, last question in five years, what's the craziest thing you think we'll be doing in the metaverse? Or maybe I'll extend this to the creator economy that people just aren't thinking about yet. I think in five years, okay. Something that people are going to be doing and Web3 shit, I don't know. I have no Maybe idea. Maybe even 2023, you know, like something that's on the cusp, on the horizon. We're in 2022, right? Right, Josh? All right. Um. <laughs> it's kind of dependent on how you feel about life. Yeah, we're, we're in 2022 still. I think five years from now, okay, we may be falling trapped more to like a, a dystopian, dystopian world. And we're already seeing like instances of that. And I, I want to be an optimist when I say this, but I think... Uh, the meme always wins to, to some extent. People kind of like preferring their online identity, right? Versus their, their in-person identity will actually like, we'll see that like consistently. Um, we're seeing very small instances of that right now. Even people that I've had on the podcast, like they dox themselves in person, but they'll never post a picture of themselves online 
right of their of their true face and they'll always sort of like overlap that with like their mask right like their pfp or whatever i think we're going to see a lot more of that i also don't think that's like such like a <gasps> type of answer that people may be expecting because it's five years from now like what 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 can we really know but what's for sure is that crypto is going to be here to stay more creators are going to be crypto native they're going to be using social tokens nfts DAO primitives as a way to build monetize and own their audience and i'm going to be here for it so that's a, that's a solid answer, despite me not knowing. <laughs> it's a great answer. And I actually really like that you touched on identity right before we ended the pod, just because that's so close to what we're doing at Unstoppable. Thinking about how as a creator, you know, I, I talk about NFT domains a lot as an identity builder, your identity on the internet and how we're going to attach on-chain data, off-chain data to it. But like if you start with your NFT domain as identity, and then you think about all the actions you take on chain, whether you're minting free NFT domains, minting work of yours uh, for you know actual ETH or something like that on any of these protocols you mentioned, that's building your identity and you want your name associated with that and not just your wallet address. So great, great one to end the pod with. So thanks so much. This has been a fantastic episode. I learned a ton and I'm going to be listening back and thinking about how I can apply some of these principles to what I want to do 100%. And I think I'm going to have to even commemorate that by scooping up one of your podcast NFTs too. Let's go. So can you just <laughs> let us know where we can find, connect with you after listening to the pod? Yeah. So if you go to adamlevy.io, you can find my website and then there's a bunch of fun navigation stuff at the top from the podcast to the blog to the newsletter, et cetera. I'm Levy Chain everywhere on Twitter, Instagram. I think the newsletter is even like levychain.substack.com. One thing I'd also say is like DM me. I want to hear about what you're working on, like the latest crowdfund you're trying to complete, any new creative ideas you're working on and how crypto is sort of like playing a role in that. So my DMs are always open. Uh, it may be long to reply, but I'm there, I promise. But uh, yeah, thank you for having me, Josh. This was great. I had a really good time. You taught me a lot too and uh, hope to do this again soon. Awesome. Well, thanks for listening to the Unstoppable Podcast. Coming out with a new episode every single week. Please like, subscribe. goes a long way to helping us build our crypto audience. With that, I'll catch you in the metaverse. See you on Twitter. Peace out. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share this with your friends. And remember, this conversation doesn't have to end here. Tweet us your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. I look forward to hearing from you, and thank you so much for listening.